Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Becca McNeil, so great to finally have you on the podcast. Uh, we've had the pleasure of Zooming a couple times in the last eight months, year or so. And then you put this book out, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. It's uh, a topic that a lot of listeners have messaged me about, have posted in the patron Facebook group about it. It's something I am thinking about a whole lot with a two and a half year old. And thank you for writing this book. Ah, thank you for reading it. One thing I love about you writing this book is that you're a journalist. And so I love that you have the skills of sort of pulling in disparate sources, really kind of thinking about the veracity of sources, the trustworthiness, credentials, if that applies. To contrast it with something, you're not just like an Instagram influencer with a Canva account. <laughs> 
who makes nice looking, <laughs> you know, like posts that may or may not be backed by evidence or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, as much as my Gen Z friends and family are like, wow, you've become quite the Canva artist, haven't you? And my, yeah. <laughs> the publishers are like, please stop making your own canvas. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's a, I'm trying to swim in more credible waters. So by the way, people don't know Canva is like a free web design. Well, there's a pro account and a free version. And like, if you follow anyone on Instagram who has like obviously formatted posts, there's a pretty good chance they got that from Canva. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I use it. You can it. do it you on know, your it's, phone. It's fine. It's awesome. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Canva, if you want to advertise on Dan's podcast, <laughs> yeah, seriously. you just got some. Uh, no free ads. Call, email me, Canva. You have permission, podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> okay. But what I mean by that is, you know, Canva's fine. Sure. I, it's great. It's a great tool. But it's not merely a Canva account. Like right. you've learned to put in, you know, the shoe leather. You've learned to, to put in the work. One of those things that you learn in journalism very quickly is the different levels of scrutiny. I learned this in grad school too, doing research, is that someone's personal testimony in the book, there's people who talk to me and I'm not going to say like, are you, you know, I'm not going to go look at their kids and be like, are your kids good enough for me to take your advice? I'm, I'm hearing people's <laughs> lived experiences. And at the same time, knowing how to apply scrutiny to people who are claiming to be experts and knowing the difference between those two. And I think that's a journalism skill that gets lost in a lot of the Canva stuff because they're either over scrutinizing, you know, people who are just sharing their experiences or they're under scrutinizing people who are spouting off, you know, their personal philosophy of life as though it's been backed by science and peer reviewed. Right. Yeah, like not to go too much of a rabbit trail here, but it's like psychological assessment. So like if you go in for an autism assessment or personality assessment or whatever, a good assessor will give you some objective measures that you take, but they'll also make notes about the behavior that they're noticing in you. If it's a child, they'll get reports from the parents and the teachers, like getting different angles we want. We want four to seven sources of information. And then what we're looking for is where do those all agree? Exactly. So there's nothing wrong, right, with a case study, a single case study of an individual. If the details of that case study are aligning with this meta review of all the literature and this person's experience that they're telling me and what I'm seeing with my eyes in the behavior of this person, like now we're getting, okay, we're getting more and more confident about what is likely the case. Right. And it reminds me, journalism reminds me of that when it's done well. And by the way, we should say you're a journalist for Sojourners magazine these days and others. Yes, I'm a freelancer. And so I, Texas Monthly, the Texas Tribune, the 74 million Sojourners, Christianity Today, whole group of people. But I wanted yeah. to point out that what we're talking about is great for journalism. And one of the points that I don't come out and make, but one of the points that I wanted to make by having this book published by uh, by Erdman's theology publisher is that yeah. we can do theology this way too. Hmm. And that's as I was writing kind of the knowing that Erdman's was going to publish it that it was going to be pushed as like a Christian yeah book and they kept wanting me to lean more into the like it's a guide it's a how to you know there was a lot of feedback early on when I was pitching it give us a how to give us how to raise our kids this way. And 
I kept coming back and saying, this is, this book is an anti how to, this is a step away from that certainty that we've been trying to cling to and find both in our theology and in our child raising. And I think what happens when we do spiritual life, child rearing, all that stuff in that very kind of modernist tradition is you either have, I'm sorry, we're only going to talk about people who've been, who have a seminary degree. You have to have all of this training to have any kind Mm. of insight into what the Bible says, you know, we'll tell whether or not it's the spirit speaking to you by whether or not it lines up to what we have decided the spirit is allowed to say, you know, this very hierarchical epistemology we know based on expertise. And then you have the other side (laughs) that's just like, I feel God is green (laughs) and (laughs) apples are, you know, my spiritual, you know, and you can just. Well, it's the, it's the heaven accounts, right? Like some kid, according to his parents says he went to heaven. It gets jumped all over. It makes $20 million. And then it turns out five years later, the dad fucking made it up, you know? So it's like, that's the opposite version of where it's like, there's there's no credulity. There's no careful thought. Right. It's just like, it's inspirational in the sense that, sure, if you read it, you will feel inspired, even if it's bullshit. Yeah. And then you have a scandal later on, and now you can't put those books out anymore because people find out that they were bullshit. And in the long run, yeah. you sort of hurt the witness of the church. Yeah. And I think that we would do better to take this approach of saying, Okay, there are things that are starting to be more established and regular. There's patterns that we're seeing. This is research. There's things that line up. Okay, hold on. We're seeing a divergent pattern. Something's either changing or we were wrong. Yeah, I like that. And that's journalism. The city hall sends you their budget, but you keep seeing work projects that aren't in that budget. There's a pattern of reality that's not lining up to the to the document that you sent me. I love that. And it's different ways of knowing and it's allowing people and it democratizes it by saying, yeah, we can all have the spirit, which means that I can have a dialogue with systematic theology that doesn't say it's not necessarily subjecting my experience to it, but they're entering maybe not on an exactly equal plane, but they can work together. And when you have, when I look at the response of the institution to like people who are quote unquote deconstructing, I just go, y'all are refusing to see the pattern that doesn't Mm -hmm. align with the city hall budget. You're refusing to see how many works projects are happening off book. (laughs) Right. And you're sticking to no, this is the budget. And I want us to breathe a little bit, and I'm stealing that directly from Angela Parker, who that's her whole argument is that we're closing up who gets to participate in biblical dialogue when we say there's only one way of knowing. Well, I think this is going to come out before just because of of lining up with your your book schedule and the fact that I'm trying to do a number of episodes on the child rearing stuff. But I have already recorded a conversation that I think will come out shortly after with Bonnie Christian about her new book, Untrustworthy, and the knowledge crisis, you know, in in the West, in America, in the church, etc. These are almost kind of like a double feature companion episodes in that sense that yeah. they are, you know, her, she's dressing it head on. And we're going to talk about what you found when you put this more responsible, eclectic, multi-source, you know, approach 
in play for yourself. So let me ask you this. Why did you want to write this book about raising kids? By the way, the book is called Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. So you got kids? Did the church let you down? I mean, is that winner, the answer? Winner, winner. Right on both counts. Uh, not only am I bringing up kids after being let down by the church, but you are too. I am. And, One thus far. And that Hopefully more. is why I ended up writing the book because of all the you out there who um, I just kept having the same conversation over and over again. And in journalism, that's your sign that there's a story there. I'm an education reporter, so I'd be talking to people about their kids. And we'd have these, like, after the fact, we'd just be chatting by our cars, you know, and they would start telling their story about, well, I grew up religious, but we now my child is queer or whatever, and they'd have these stories. And I just kept hearing them, kept hearing them, kept hearing them. Trumpisms going on, more and more people are like, hold on, I can't raise my kids around this. Then the pandemic happens, everybody's anxious, and they're like, oh, now I need comfort. And I'm, I, I feel like I want faith, but I don't know how to talk about it to my kids because we walked away from the church. Or, hmm. And so it was just this loud conversation that we were all having but we kept having to have it as adults. And then like you'd stare, everybody stare. I felt like everybody went home from having these really meaty adult conversations, stared at their kids and went like, okay, let's, let's bless our food, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> let's read Clifford's first Easter, yeah, I, guess. I guess. Maybe that, is there going to be, there's no resurrection in that one. Okay. Yeah. Is there a Berenstein <laughs> bears for this? <laughs> There, you know, you're getting at something really interesting. I don't even know that I have words for it, but uh, you know me, I'm going to try. <laughs> there, there is a gap between something that I, that is about myself or maybe my spouse and I, my partner and I, my friends and I, whatever, my peers, and I'm comfortable thinking about it, working through it. Uh, okay, I've got some uncertainty here, but we're going to, We're just going to work with what we've got here. Then there's another category when you have a precious little one (laughs) and you're like, I don't want to fuck this (laughs) up. And, you know, I don't want to repeat mistakes. I also don't want to go so far the other way that I just make new mistakes that they then go back to the mistakes that my parents made. It's like that that extra level. It's it's a multiplier of anxiety and uncertainty that. We, like you're saying, we can have these meaningful conversations as adults. Wow, COVID's been hard. Here's what I'm figuring out. Da, 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 da. But then we look to our kids and it's like, oh gosh, I don't, I'm, af- I'm like afraid. I'm like damned if I do, damned mm-hmm. if I don't. And the stakes feel a hundred times higher with my son than they do with me right. sometimes. Well, and our culture feeds into those mistakes. The first three chapters of my book, the subtitle for the first section is The Icy Road, but it might as well be called like, why am I so fucking anxious? <laughs> because that's what it's answering. <laughs> it's looking at this culture that has used parents who are biologically in this place of defense and protection and wanting to really take care of this little person. It's capitalized, literally capitalizing on that. We will buy anything. We will vote for anything. We will attend the demonstration. And so it looks at how white supremacy has 
jumped in on that and mobilized parents. It looks at how the parenting industry has jumped in on that and said, and that's why there was so much pressure on me to write a how-to. It's because it's like parents eat that shit up. They want that guarantee that they're not going to screw up their kid. And you can have it in the, in the early days. You remember this when you have an infant, it's how to not kill your kid. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. You got to make them. S- and those are pretty straightforward <laughs> and people mostly agree on them. Yeah, mostly. And, and yet yeah. I had so much anxiety about sleep schedules that now I'm like, God, y'all are fine. <laughs> My kids are six yeah, and well, eight. And they're like, <laughs> do they lay on their stomach? Do they, do they sleep on their back? And okay. Now we think they should sleep on their back, but now all of them are getting these weird divots in their head. So that's why you see all these kids wearing helmets. It's just, it's nonstop. You know, it's non, it's nonstop. And so, and then the, the, what we tried to do as we have tried to do with the Bible and our own spiritual formation is that we try to turn their spiritual formation into something that is (laughs) sciencey. That's very like, certainty based. And of course you want certainty. This is scary and it's hard, but we're so trained to look at that for ourselves. You have the enlightenment telling the theologians that they had to prove it by reason. And then you have the Bible trying to do all the stuff. I don't think it was ever meant to do. Mm -hmm. I recently revisited this amazing tweet from a long time ago. That is a guy who said, uh, did anybody ever ask cauliflower if it wanted to be all these things? (laughs) And I was like, that's the Bible. (laughs) Like, did anybody ever ask the Bible if it wanted to be a science textbook? Like, does it want to be rice and, and uh, pizza whatever? Dough. Yeah. yeah. So pizza dough, yeah. <laughs> I feel that way about the Bible. And yeah. I think that when you look at parents who have been told that this exists, you've been told that there is a way to get perfect kids, to get healthy kids, to get, right. you know, whatever. And it seems irresponsible not to take it. Let me, this is probably less of a pushback and more of a clarification of terms. So when you say we want to turn it into like a science certainty thing, science done well <laughs> isn't certain. is not about certainty, right? It's about what's the best evidence we have at the moment based on, you know, our most careful reasoning and, and experiments and right. stuff. And so in that sense, like I like a scientific approach, my, my go-to book for when we are really having a, a big question is a book called The Science of Parenting, which uh, a family friend who's a child therapist recommended to us when we had our first kid. She said, I recommend this book to all new parents. It's objective. It's based on the latest evidence. You can kind of like actually calm your anxiety and go, OK, here's what we think is probably true about this based on evidence. Yeah. It's not the only thing I ever read, but I like an approach like that, that sort of you you then have to tailor it to your own children, of course, because no people are the same. But like, you know, like, OK, for instance, rather than talk about that, let's do that. So one of the things that you that is important to you, because we've talked about some of this parenting stuff before, is attachment and perfectionism in families. So tell us, for instance, what you've learned about the basic science of attachment and how that interacts with some of this sometimes evangelical specific perfectionism, although really it's you're 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 already kind of getting at it. We might lean toward a perfectionism if we are trying to calm our own anxiety about how to raise our children. Right? Exactly. 
Yes, thank you for speaking up in defense of science. <laughs> and I do I do use <laughs> science throughout my book and I have read I mean science has been what has definitely helped me in my parenting journey and I agree. I think that the good science does invite you to say, you know, this is going to look a little different for you. Well, and we're going to talk about Lisa. I'm yeah. excited to talk about Lisa Miller and her, yeah, you know, and Tina Bryson. neurological research and psychological yeah. research and all this yeah. stuff. So yeah, we'll so. get there. And I, and yes, I do. I'm glad you made that distinction because I think it's one more example of something being asked to do. I mean, you see how science gets presented in the media. Scientists have proven blah, 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 blah. I mean, it drives right. scientists nuts. With attachment and perfectionism, unfortunately, I didn't start reading a whole lot about attachment theory until I was, we were already in edits for the book. And so it doesn't show up mm -hmm. a ton in there. But what happened is that a pediatrician read it for a review and she was like, you know, with a lot of the attachment stuff I'm seeing, especially in like adolescence, this speaks to that. She's like, this speaks to the kind of perfect storm of factors that are leading to mm. so many attachment wounds. And when I th think about my view of God, it's just a big attachment wound. It's it's insecure. There's a feeling. This is you or this is the pediatrician still this talking? This is me now. Okay. <laughs> she. Well, so let, let me give a really two, two sentences about attachment here. So people have, if they don't have the context. Yeah. So, and I might bunker this. <laughs> Still, You'll get it still closer a student. than me. <laughs> still a psychology student, but like attachment is basically it's this. Uh, it can be secure or insecure. There are different types of insecure, uh, like avoidant or disorganized. I'm doing a poor job, but basically the idea is uh, what you want and what leads to all kinds of better outcomes later in life is that a child has at least one, often the mother, but not always attachment figure to whom they feel secure that like that person is there for me if I need them if I'm really in distress they show up if I get taken to a new place where there are toys or children somewhere around the age of two to four then I will go explore and I will come back yes. to my attachment figure I won't just stay there until someone grabs me and has me leave. These are some of the ways you measure it right. in young children. Later in life, there is all kinds of research around people's romantic relationships and other types of relationships and in how they mimic, can mimic, uh, depending on what happens in the meantime, they can mimic that attachment relationship that you had or have with your mother or primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. And so people who had shitty moms often have shitty relationships. That's a very short way of saying it. We um, call them daddy issues. And so that's issues. the daddy issues are attachment issues, basically. Uh, now you could, I guess, have daddy issues and have like a good mom. But, sure. you know, anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little bit beyond my uh, competency here, but that's the basics of attachment. And so there is this question, the pediatrician read your book and said, interesting, I'm working with all these adolescents and I'm noticing some attachment stuff. So fill that in for us. Sure. Well, here's a good example from my own life yesterday. I, I went to pick up my six-year-old from school. The teacher said, something happened in art class today. I don't know what it was, but the art teacher might have to call you. And I'm like, with my son, this is like normal. <laughs> he is, okay. He's Calvin okay. from Calvin and Hobbes. And I was like, 
you know, immediately my parent anxiety rises. Of course. Recounted in the book, first of all, is how I handled this first time with my daughter, my older daughter. The first time the teacher said this to me about her, I completely spun out, probably created an attachment wound, you know, and have Mm. since had to like repair that. So with my son, I'm like fighting to keep it down. I'm fighting to keep the like, what did you do? Away. And so we get in the car and I said, hey, would you tell me what happened in art class today so that I can be prepared in case the teacher calls and I can know your side of the story? So I was trying to signal to him, I want to know so that you aren't left out and you get to say your side. I'm for you. I'm your team first. Not, and I also said, you know how it feels to be surprised, how sometimes your emotions are bigger when you're surprised? Well, it'll help mommy respond better to the teacher if I know what's coming. He said, okay, but I'll only tell you if you promise not to be mad. (laughs) So, Which is proof already that what you were doing was working. Exactly. Yeah. But in his mind, it wasn't, I think a lot of parents think, and my parents did, they know I'll never kick them out on the street. They know I'll never, you know, fully reject them. And the the thing that's subtle here is that it's not just that. Like, yes, if you had that parent who was constantly threatening to throw you out on the street, you're probably screwed as far as yeah. psychological understanding of belonging and love and unconditional, yeah. you know. Be- You'll have, you're going to have to relearn that somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. Like. You didn't, you're not going to get it from them. No. Right. There are levels of it. He right. wanted to know, what are you going to take away from me? Am I going to be punished? And mm-hmm. not that there's never a time to revoke privileges and whatnot, but it showed how like fine-tuned this connection can be. Interesting. Yeah. It was, and again, I'm not saying that I should have said carte blanche. Well, no, what? You stabbed a kid with the scissors? <laughs> right, no right, problem. Right. Let's go buy I'm you a toy. I'm you. Yeah. 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 No, Let's get a like, toy. Right. 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 I, and, you know, I had the benefit of knowing that, like, he hadn't done that or they'd called. Yeah. Yeah. And the teacher had rolled her eyes, too. So I already, I had all these clues. Yeah. But I said, Asa, I might be mad in my head, depending on what you did. Like, my reaction, my emotions might be mad, but I'm not going to punish you because you've already dealt with it at school. And he said, so you'll keep your mad in your head? <laughs> I said, yes, I will. Aww. And he said, all right. <laughs> and he told me what he did. He had yeah. chewed up a piece of paper and spit it out. And then, of course, the parenting battle was not just to laugh and be like, what the hell, teacher? <laughs> like, you're going to call me over this? You know, neither here nor there. Right. I'm sure there's some nuance. He probably spit it at someone, whatever. But in that moment, I had a thousand little choices about, to me, how do I communicate a boundary? And still, I value your experience too. I want you to make sure that you feel loved. I want to make sure that you aren't afraid. I want to make sure that you understand that the consequence is not how I feel about you. It's you needing to you needing to know what is okay and what is not okay at, as far as harming others, harming property, et cetera. So broadly speaking, that's the attachment aspect is that you're you're basically saying you belong here. Mm-hmm. I I am with you. You you are mine. I am yours. Mm-hmm. 
and X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah. But that's, yeah. So again, not an attachment expert, but it's that kind of core question of like, am I okay with this person? Does this person accept and love me? And if so, then I can attach to them. And it's uh, the thing I want to point out is that it's so, I mean, every parent will say, I love you. Nothing you could do to change that. Parents will communicate Mm -hmm. that, but it shows up in the proportionality of our discipline. It shows up in how they're allowed to speak into the interpretation of the situation. It shows up in how we offer them, you know, chances and forgiveness. It's, It's such a, and this is where I think more like, I just want to read, 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 read is because the nuances of that are, I think, where everybody ends up in therapy because no parent gets it right 100% of the time. And I don't know what he's interpreting as disproportionate and all of that, but it's just this effort. Whereas I think a lot of us were raised with parents who would have said, they would have taken, you broke a rule. Now you're a rule breaker, rule rule breaking leads to more rule breaking. You can't be a rule breaker. You'll go to hell, <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So it's about just basically seeing your child as someone who has emotional realities and needs and that how you communicate love has to take that into account. And that's the work of like Tina Payne Bryson. Really? Before we go to her real quick, I just want to say to give a little context here, the best research nowadays seems to indicate that around 60% of children have secure attachment to their parents. So if you are the kind of person who is listening to 90-minute podcasts about raising your children well and you are being, you know, conscious about this stuff and you are not in and out of rehab or whatever other, you know, legitimate difficulties that, that many adults face while raising their children, you you probably are getting this broadly speaking right i want to make right. sure that we're not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not adding sort of to the rain clouds to people's anxiety like you know like there's stuff to learn and we're all we're all doing our best and trying to get better but if you have a stable home and you are thinking about this stuff like statistically your child probably has secure attachment. So yeah. let's just we get just lower that basic anxiety level. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry, everyone. And no, add, it's fine. But adding to that, if you're listening to this podcast in particular, I would imagine that a lot of your listeners do have some experience with fundamentalism or exposure to like a rigid religious system. Yeah. That brings in the second point that you probably are more familiar with attachment wounds then your hopefully your children will be because now you're on this journey of of trying to extract yourself from that that's been an interesting sort of lens in making this show and in talking to people through interviews and and just offline i didn't have insecure attachment i didn't have any of the you know like what I, it sounds like it sounds like from your understanding one of the ways that a conservative religious household might impact attachment negatively is through perfectionism. So Phil, and you know, I'm going to almost definitely have Crispin Mayfield on to get, uh, he has a book called attached to God. I mean, this is kind of his field, but let's do a little bit of it here. So just explain to us how perfectionism can undermine the kind of thing that you were sort of modeling with your son there. Yeah. 
And I, I'm glad Crispin will be able to talk about more of like the, the how of it. Yeah. Um, and the, both the brain science and the theological stuff. Well, and there's really interesting stuff about adult attachment to God. It's, it's like a fascinating field. I'm excited to do, to have 90 minutes to just talk about that. But yeah, I think it's worth doing a little bit. Yeah. Here. Well, and perfectionism is one of them. Getting away from perfectionism is one of the main themes in my book because my operating observation is that in myself and others, even once you have traded out your system, your belief in, you know, biblicism or whatever, your yeah. conservative system, you can still have the internal operations of perfectionism, anxiety, all of that, that you find yourself worrying about things that you no longer believe in your mind. <laughs> you find yourself worrying about rejection yeah. almost habitually. And you find yourself feeling where I bring in the perfectionism is just that belief that I link it to the reformed theology that I grew up with, which was the, even my repenting needs repenting of this kind of race to the mm. bottom on, I can't think lowly enough of myself. And so my righteousness is as filthy rags. Oh yeah. Worm theology applied, not poetically, but broadly. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I remember being 17 and sitting on the porch of my school crying because even when 17, I remember you're supposed to be like full of yourself. And I remember feeling like even when I was seeing my sin, I was proud of myself for seeing it and sinning again. And just wow. my best friend holding me while I'm sobbing as though I have just been broken up with and just going, hey, let's just go to lunch. Let's just go to lunch. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fucked up. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not like developmentally appropriate, I don't think. Like I should have been feeling yeah. invincible and instead I was feeling completely unworthy all of the time. And instead of that, it leads some kids dispositionally, I think, to be like, peace out, see you later. And it leads yeah. kids like me who are... <laughs> who love approval. I'm a firstborn. Dig deeper. I'm just going, try harder, try harder. Be the good youth group kid. Yep, exactly. You can do it. You can do it. And perfectionism makes you defensive because anybody pointing out even the slightest thing feels like it's going to be tied to, well, that was the one thing that you needed to get right in order to maintain your, like if you, ooh, and I, I remember this showing up when I worked in ministry. It was like, you could get n nine out of 10 things right, but without fail, that one thing you got wrong was the disqualifier. Yeah. Now you're going to lose something, some piece of, of your job, some piece of your position in the community, some role, some friendship, some something. Let's take a little break. And then when we come back, I'm going to respond to that perfectionism stuff. It's incredible, like, it never really ceases to amaze me that a religion, even the version of Christianity, which I now reject, which is primarily about, you know, the atoning work of the blood of Christ, that's the only real mechanism that matters, how a religion that says there's only one mechanism that matters, 
will nevertheless find 500 more mechanisms that matter. Okay, you've got the atoning blood of Christ, but you're being led astray by critical race theory. Or, but you are like, don't hold up the biblical ethic of sexuality. Or you talked back to the pastor. Right. I mean, it's it's behavioral too. It's, it's behavioral not just too. your beliefs. Yeah. And I think that's where it ties into that you can say, I love you, I love you to your kids over and over. But if there's a thousand little landmines, mm-hmm. because they would never tell me you've lost your salvation. But my my acceptance and my experience and my relationships within the community were constantly being battered mm. by a thousand little details. Yeah. And I think that for kids, that's the thing, is that when all of those details matter to mom and dad, they have to matter. Because, okay, another example, I love my parents, still have a great relationship with them, raising my children very differently, still have a lot of anxiety that I want them I want the same product, but I want to get it differently. I want to get the same great behavior. I was very well behaved as a kid. I want that same behavior, but I don't want to have to, you know, give my kids an anxiety disorder to get, to get it. And so we're at my uh, parents' house and my son, again, Calvin, his his name is Asa, but But he's he's Calvin Calvin. Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Comes in to the living room sees his sister picking up his stuff and goes, what the fuck, Moira? (laughs) (laughs) And my parents, both eyebrows shoot up, look over at me like, what you going to do, mom? Yeah. And again, growth had that happened with Moira, sweet girl, when she was little, there would have been, I would have felt the need to perform fireworks. Yes. To show them like, I take this seriously. I am not just letting this go. Like my methods are working. And fortunately, my husband was there, and he's a lot more confident <laughs> in, like, whatever we're doing it our way. So he he whisked Asa off to discuss language. But that desire to – how our kids reflect on us is, is deeply ingrained. And I think that I – moms especially, unfortunately, heard a lot of static during the culture wars about how if we didn't do our job right – our kids were going to turn out to be reprobates. And so now you've got, if you're a working mom, everything your kid does feels like proof that the church ladies were right. Mm. And that's working uh. against you too. Yeah. All right. Tell us about Tina Payne Bryson. What's her work? So Tina Payne Bryson wrote or co-wrote um, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and several others. Those are her ones that I am most in love with, Mm -hmm. (laughs) she talks about basically the brain science of behavior in children and how a lot of what they're doing is not a soul level problem. It is a brain level issue. When a child explodes, they have gone from the still developing (laughs) prefrontal cortex where they can hold their temper, think about what might be happening. And instead they've gone to their older brain, their brain closer to their brain stem to go into fight or flight and think if I lose that toy, I'm losing my vital resource. I have to attack. Right. And so she gives all of these great tips for parents to help get the child back into the part of the brain where you want them to be, to have learning happen 
and talking a lot about discipline as training. And to me, when I read No Drama Discipline, which I did when my daughter turned two and a half-ish, right after her brother was born and started acting out. Yeah. And suddenly I was having to make good on all of my pledges to be a gentle parent. I was like, this is actually deeply biblical in the sense of like Christian. All the things we say, train up a child in the way they should get. Like her her words about training is not a spank them so that they're scared next time. That's just activating the fear brain. She's more about if you continue to train them, which means getting them into a place where they can learn and teaching them and then practicing. And practicing means you're not getting it perfect the first time. So incorporating practice, incorporating learning into how you want the children to behave and interact with other people, that that's a more effective and a gentler and a more pro-social way to raise kids. I need to do a lot more reading. That's my first (laughs) takeaway. (laughs) Um, My second thought is it lines up interestingly and well with one of the things I read in that Science of Parenting book, which, by the way, any book we mention here, Josh is going to put a link in the show notes so people can find these books, including yours, of course. (laughs) They said, like, around temper tantrums, they delineate between two types. And I'm going to probably butcher some of the language here. But basically, is your child melting down because they're melting down? And that's the kind of thing that you just described, where, like, they've they've gone away from their prefrontal cortex. They're in their amygdala. They are – they really are not in control. They are having a – yeah, like a nervous system reaction, essentially. Or are they doing one where they're just trying to be the boss, right? And so it's like you you determine – what do you, okay, what do you think is going on here? Because you actually want to treat those differently. Because mm-hmm. if they're just trying to be the boss and they're kind of aware of what they're doing, this is maybe at older ages when they have a bit more of that capacity for manipulation. And I mean, although... Uh, mine so, started it too. Okay, too, I was like, exactly. how is this happening? In fact, I'll give you a particularly fun example. So Soren figured out that if... <laughs> Soren figured out that if... He asked us to hold him that we all he said, Dada, hold me that I will never say no. Then he would go, and this is maybe even one and a half too. Then he would go, then I would pick him up and then he would point. He go, Dada, hold me that way. And then I would go, oh, you want to walk out there? Okay. So then we walk <laughs> out there. And then what is whatever thing he wants me to do. So then if we're in the room with the TV or if we're in the whatever, it's like, Okay, now he's like he's figured out that if he wants to watch TV, first thing he should do is have me hold him and then walk with him. And now I'm like, now he's in my good graces, and then maybe I'll say yes to television. Okay, so they're they're they do that, which is so lovely and just adorable. And yeah. I have hard time saying no to positive manipulation. And then the same child at age six will turn around and say, "This morning." What's more important to you, mom, me being on me being to school on time or me being happy in life? (laughs) Okay, so basically the idea of the book is if they're having a a tantrum or whatever, there are these two different types. And if it is the latter type, if it's like they're trying to get what they want, well, that's a different you got to respond to that differently. What what I'm seeing as aligning between these two books is like, 
what's going on in their brains. Like yes. you don't have to be a neuro neuroscientist. There are some principles that essentially people who understand the brain agree on and, and try and figure it out. Try and figure out, is this like they're not they don't have access to that frontal lobe of decision making and, and holding off on things and deferring, you know, gratification and all that. Or are they actually deferring gratification in a very clever way? Okay, we're going to deal with the prefrontal cortex differently than we're going to deal with the amygdala, essentially, is what we're saying. Yes. And I think the journey for me from fundamentalist parenting to human parenting, Mm -hmm. we'll call it that, is looking for more than one explanation. That's back to the journalism thing. Yeah. And it'll probably touch into your experience in becoming a therapist, because if you were in the Christian counseling world, it would be find the sin. Where's the sin? Or find the scripture that you need to keep repeating to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. because the root of it all is sin. Let's go on an idol hunt. <laughs> Going on an idol hunt. Going <laughs> to catch a big one. Came back with seven times as many demons. Okay, sorry. Exactly. Couldn't we sank it. in the river because they were too heavy. I think that parenting... Fundamentalist parenting said the root of all my children's behavior was sin and rebellion. Yeah. And the main thing that they need to learn is obedience. Obedience is the main virtue for children. Yep. And women. But (laughs) that's a different discussion. And instead looking at it as, oh, there could be more than one source of this behavior. And to me, yes, it complicates it. Yes, you don't get your instant results it is effective to scare them for a few years into behaving. You can get some kind of instant results if a look from you strikes fear into their heart and they know that they're not supposed to get cookies out of the pantry. Eventually, you'll not be the most scary person in their life. Developmentally, they will separate from you and their friends, their bosses, their their romantic attachments will be more influential and scarier. The risk and reward will change. Yeah. And then that tool gets used by somebody else. I honestly don't remember where I heard all of this, but I've definitely seen it to be true. But it was basically saying that kids who respond to threats and fear and withholding and whatnot are just more set up for peer pressure. They're more set up to hmm. be influenced by that because developmentally their friends are supposed to become more important to them. And so you would have to up the consequences in order to stay scarier. And you might just have a kid who just decides, I don't really care if you throw me out of the house. I don't care what you take away from me. Being accepted by my friends is more important. Is more important. And if those friends are you know, wanting them to do risky behaviors. That's, that's what you're up against. And I mean, at that point you get into a lot of confounding variables, which is the difficulty in kind of, you know, you've got the kids got various brain states. They've got proclivities genetically. They've got, there's the social context. uh, You know, I mean, there's just like, but it it gives you, yeah. yeah. It gives you so much more to work with as a parent if you accept that and you don't just see it as you're a sinner being tempted by sin. Yes, 100%. My daughter Moira is a more effusive, happy joiner. Like she is your enthusiast on every topic. 
And Asa is a little more wary, suspicious, and he's a little more sardonic. And that is me and my husband mm-hmm. in small form. Yeah. But knowing that when I come in with an idea and say like, guys, we're going to go to the park. I can't look at Moira's response and say, oh, she's being grateful. Like, look at her, moralize her response of like, yeah, I'm going to get my shoes. Hmm. And when Asa goes, I don't want to, it's hot. It's, you know, his little brain that just defaults to no, just like his father. (laughs) Knowing that it's helping me not go, well, you're just ungrateful or you're just not, you're rebelling. You don't want to do what I want to do. And you're trying to dig in your feet instead knowing you're, this is just you. <laughs> you are getting at something that is so foundational to, I think, to understanding Christianity and any religious or moral system in the light of modern science. So what we were, what most of us who listen to this show were brought up with, and, you know, actually probably most people, frankly, across religious and non-religious traditions are brought up with an overly simplistic set of, I don't know, like markers or explanations for behavior, right? Partly because when you're a kid, you you don't have the capacity for the kind of nuance that we have as adults talking about this. So that part's understandable. But it persists into adulthood for most people, maybe, that like, oh, bad people do bad things. Good people do good things. And, uh, you know, bad people get addicted to drugs and good people don't. And, you know, this idea of because humans are in some sense responsible for their behavior, which I do believe is true, therefore, they are responsible for everything about their behavior, including what happened to them, what other people did to them, and the brains they were born with that they didn't choose. And what I think is more accurate is that in any given moment, we are responsible for our choices and we have a very limited range of choices in any particular experience. Now, over the long run, cumulatively over decades, those choices will add up to something more appreciable, like more significant. You can you can kind of say, all right, I'm looking at two 70 year olds. And one of them has decided to be generous, and that's led to a certain kind of life, and another one has decided not to be, and that's led to a certain kind of a life. Again, though, you got to take into account, well, how were they parented? How did people treat them? Uh, What kind of genetics were they given? It's all far more nuanced than, well— any how-to parenting book you could write, for instance. Exactly. You know, and, and it's all it, like the thing I like to say about theology is true here. It's, it's discernment all the way down. There's no bedrock. It is always discernment, just like journalism. It's always discernment. It's always weighing the, the types of evidence you have and doing your best to place them in ascending order of trustworthiness, which is exhausting but thankfully, we don't have to do it for every little decision we make all the time. But if you have a tough one and you're trying to figure out the truth, like, here's a tough one. Are my child's standard responses to my volleys evidence of their – of, like, one child's greater sinfulness than the other child? Like, okay, 
that's not one we want to answer lightly. Like we need to dig into what is known. And, and those of us listening to this want something better than the simplistic moralistic version that you and I, I had a little bit less of it because my dad was a therapist. So, and I wasn't, I was never a raised fundamentalist. So I had a little bit better version, but I still understand the thing that, you know, so many listeners experienced and that you experienced. And I see this, another like hazard of journalism is the connection making all over the place. So it's kind of hard to stay (laughs) in one realm. But when I look at, for instance, the work of an economist named Thomas Piketty, he says that, you know, Marxism, for instance, has told us that all motivations, political motivations are material. And capitalism says, no, it's about ideals and all this stuff. And he says, actually, ideology and material, like the possessions and your survival and having like access to resources and whatnot is one set of things. And also there are ideals that come in and influence the way we it's both. We do. It's both. And it's complicated. And his books are very long. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Capital in the 21st century, that's his big one, right? It's like 800 pages or something. I've yeah, not cap- read it. I've read Capital and Ideology. And that wow. one, it blew my mind. I was like, finally, someone who's not saying it has to be one or the other. And I think that there's miles to go before we sleep yeah. for, the- for Christians, people who want to have a faith and have to be correctly aligned to reality about the way human beings work and who want to be healthy for us to say, okay, also ethics and morality are not as simple as what's in the Bible interpreted by this group of people. Right. Like the ethics and morality are just one of many things that the Bible is speaking into and that is speaking back to the Bible and our understanding of it. Can we turn this into a principle, like to, to bring it to parenting Principle number one, this shit will not be simple and straightforward. So buckle up for that. Yeah. And and any attempt to make it simple will probably lead to negative consequences because you're going to end up getting that wrong. And then you're going to overcommit to something that is false. And then you'll end up with something maybe like perfectionism or maybe uh, like unhelpful permissiveness on the other end where you don't really do anything. I mean, maybe this is a time to talk about sort of that nurturing, uh, also called authoritative parenting. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, did that, did that research come up in your work? A little bit, a little bit. Um, what I focused more because I'm not a parenting expert and there's so many good ones out there that it was better for me to just make a list like those the bibliography in my book is my reading list. Yeah. And so I left that to them. And instead I went to, in order for you to do that, in order for any parent to accept that principle, that this is going to be complicated and whatnot, you'll ne- I don't think you'll ever do it unless you get to the heart of why you won't. <laughs> like, I think you have to look at all the things that have a hold on your your approach to parenting, the way you view the world, the way you view children, the way I think you have to do that work of kind of setting yourself free a little bit Hmm. before you're able to then look at your kids and say, we're going to get it right. We're going to get it wrong. We're all going to mess up. We're going to, we believe in redemption. (laughs) Like all of that has to be something that you're comfortable with yourself before you get there with your kids. I don't think 
that you're going to be able to do all of this, like, whether it's attachment parenting, authoritative parenting, gentle parenting, I don't think you can do any of that if you have perfectionism and anxiety attached to um, parenting. Not not like you can have an you can have right, anxiety, right, right. obviously. I have an anxious, anxiety disorder. <laughs> yeah, it's same. not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah it's no, but it's, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you have to be dealing with that stuff in your life first before you're ever going to be able to do it in the parenting is such a like it happens so fast i'm constantly telling my kids like just slow down i can't make this many decisions this fast and y'all are responding in ways i need to address yeah it's never this like and then he came in 10 minutes later and said but mom what about this i'll leave you with that so that you can <laughs> chew on it they're like at you and you're like this is happening yeah. and, and there's a thousand yeah. kids running around because it's at pickup at school and the teacher's mm-hmm. looking at you with a funny question and your arms are full of books it's just parenting is so wild so i think that until we can get ourselves fully out of the internal systems that we've already left externally I don't think that we can do this. And so like the example I use in the book is that like, I have a lot, I have huge anger issues because of the way I dispositionally and exacerbated by things growing up. And it was impossible for me to stop exploding in moments of high stress and just trying to get big to make it all go away because that's how I handle threat. And so I had, I didn't want to do that to my children, but I could, I literally could not stop it. I called it the Hulk. It was like yeah. in moments of high stress, there was, it was almost impossible. So much therapy, so much therapy has gone into dealing with the things inside me that are fueling that anger. And so, and I recount that story in my book about like realizing it, what I did about it. Again, just the theme of the book is that there's there's things we need to get clear on ourselves and there's things, wounds we need to address in ourselves before any of this is possible. Hey, Becca, please give us a how to parent book. <laughs> Becca's response. <laughs> no. <laughs> the no, whole but point I will recommend I that you go to therapy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem with therapy, of course, is that it's expensive. It can be prohibitively expensive. Is there a way to say that that's not spend, you know, thousands of dollars on therapy? I mean, by the way, I think it's a good use of thousands of dollars. I myself have spent many thousands of dollars on therapy. Yeah. Uh, But my response is, hey, America, let's make a therapy cheaper. Well, sure. (laughs) And And that needs to happen. But the principle behind that is, you know, even if you are doing that personal work there are other ways of doing that work than than hiring a talk therapist once a week you can you can process through the stuff that you're going through with friends who are supportive mm-hmm. you know if you have substance issues you can join a 12 step group those are free my thing started in a 12 step program mm. i mean i started going to alanon for the family members of alcoholics yeah. um because a lot of us have anger issues <laughs> from lives of chaos. And that's where it all started. And it was free and it was freeing. And so later on, and the therapy that I enrolled in was 
dialectical behavioral therapy for a year for mm-hmm. three hours a week. And it, it can be covered by insurance if you have that. Yeah. And so going into not necessarily a talk therapist, but like getting into something where you, if you're willing to have a diagnosis and willing to like commit to that level of therapy can get you into a more insured situation. Totally. And group therapy, like often groups for particular things that you're dealing with are significantly cheaper than individual mm-hmm. therapy and they are often covered by insurance and they're evidence-based. Like, yeah, you can get into a DBT group. You can get into anger, man- anger management group, bereavement group, various types of loss and grief groups, um, eating disorder groups. Uh, these things can end up being more like 50 bucks a session. Yeah. Sometimes they're like 60 bucks for two hours as yeah. opposed to, you know, 150 bucks for an hour. Yeah. So I, you know, there's yeah. psychologytoday.com is a good place to find such things. <laughs> Acknowledging that even for some people, like the, the time of day sure. can be hard to find. I mean, yeah. and honestly, if the church wanted to do something useful with itself, it would become the place that people go for healing on this stuff. Yeah. And some do. I mean, our I know that our old church, for instance, I just found out they're paying for therapy for former members. So like high fives to Grace Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like that's awesome. You know? Yeah. I think that like everything in the United States, unfortunately, it is unequitable. Um, yeah. and, and I wish that I had a better way for people, you know, for this to be yeah. accessible to everyone that said at whatever level that it is accessible to you, it is a worthwhile investment. And I do think that is a call for the church, for voters, for everybody to prioritize it. 100%. All right, let's let's take one more break here. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. It's five bucks a month. Patrons get ad-free versions of every episode of this show. They get access to exclusive patron episodes twice a month, and they get access to uncut versions of this show. Those ad-free episodes also sometimes contain extra material. There's also a Facebook group for patrons only, an awesome online community for sharing resources, sharing stories, uh, building friendships. And because everybody that does it uh, has paid a little bit to be there, there's no riffraff. Everyone who is engaged there is engaged there basically in good faith and there for a reason. Uh, I made the mistake of having a free Facebook group with my old show, Depolarize, and it just descended into the loudest megaphone wins every argument, and it really was not a very pleasant place. So uh, it's been awesome to see the You Have Permission Facebook group really thrive. All right, back to my conversation with Becca. We have a little over 20 minutes, and I want to talk about Lisa Miller's work. Josh is going to put a link in the show notes. She was recently on the Nomad podcast, a UK-based kind of religion and spirituality podcast. Her whole thing is about the spiritually awakened brain and the spiritually awakened child. She's got a book, sort of her earlier book is about kids, and her most recent book is about adults or across the lifespan. 
what should we know about Lisa Miller's work, Becca? Well, I'm speaking as someone who's recommending it. So if there's something you should know in in caution, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't currently I I need to get into it more, but at the moment <laughs> I have no words of caution. I'm very yeah. intrigued. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's basically saying that spirituality, kind of as we've been saying, is not something that needs to completely belong to people making it up as they go, nor does it need to belong to hierarchical systems that rigidly define it. That it is, like the rest of our components, something that is both innate and cultivated and develops, and that there is such a thing as spiritual development. Not in the way your church taught it, <laughs> but in the sense of when it, an awareness of the transcendent, our connection to something that is bigger than us. She says loving and guiding, right? Those are the two things about, it's like a higher power that is loving and guiding. That's her exactly. definition of, of spirituality. Exactly. And so she talks about it developing very, her book, The Spiritual Child, which I reference in my book and love, follows exactly that familiar format that you would follow, that Tina Payne Bryson's work follows actually, you know, starting at a young age. And how does this principle look across their development? Talks about the parent-child bond, parents being the first representation to something that is high, a larger power that is loving and guiding. Talking And then the phrase that she used that I just use liberally now is the field of love, expanding mm. that loving and guiding to start including others and cultivating that for our children. And I think that that is where a good church is so valuable and where a toxic church is so harmful, because I think a church presents itself as a field of love and it really needs to make good on that of being a source of acceptance, love, guidance, protection for kids as they grow. And then she talks a lot about teenagers and as they separate and as they start to search, a lot of times the experimenting with drugs and alcohol is actually a search for the transcendent, which you'll see that actually reflected. And I think in a lot of research is that it's looking for something bigger and more potent than the pettiness of a lot of what they're dealing with on a day or like the mund mundane of a day-to-day -day school life. They're ready for something bigger. And so she talks about, you know, there being an age in native American cultures where they would go out into the woods and find their vision. This is what they're ready for. Hmm. And so I think that idea of cultivating a connection to higher power, spirituality, the divine, what I would call God, <laughs> yeah, is so helpful. When I was talking to a lot of my peers and feeling in myself, like I want them to still have that place that I go when I'm scared. I do still go to scriptures. I memorize them in Bible drills, but now they're in my memory yeah. oh, and yeah. I, I go to them. I pray compulsively. Yep. I pray as a first habit when I am worried or anxious or grieving. I want them to have that. And I think that th she offers a lot of the answers of how do I do that without this 
very rigid system and prescription because she writes for people of all different faiths or no faith. And she gives tips for how to do this if you yourself are not necessarily a person of faith. And to me, if I can keep that at the center of the different practices and Christian-specific things I'm telling my kids— Like, here's our family tradition. Here's the religious tradition by which we know God. But here's actually what I'm wanting you to have as a person. Bringing those things together and not worrying so much about, is this religious system full and complete and coherent? And more about, are you getting what you need? So one way of delineating spirituality and religion in a lot of the research is spirituality is this thing that we all have the capacity for. It's like, it is like a faculty that basically everyone has. I mean, Lisa Miller and some others would say, not technically everyone. There are some people who don't really seem to have it or don't care about it that much. And maybe we will learn more about that in the future. But most people have it. Most children have it. And religion, organized religion, is sort of an organized forum into which people can put that spirituality and it gives it sort of boundaries and language. And I'm, I'm talking about that. Like, it sounds like it's bad. Uh, I don't mean it that way. I mean, like, mm-hmm. like the serenity prayer at a 12 step yeah. meeting is, you know, that's an expression of spirituality, but it's also organized. You say it the same way every time. And, and yeah. it reminds you to try and delineate between what you can and cannot control and to be able to have acceptance of the stuff you can't control, right? So mm-hmm. if that, that, that I find to be a very helpful sort of definitional thing, do we know much about how to increase or encourage our children's fundamental ability to have a spirituality, that, that capacity? Do we know much about how to cultivate that and encourage that to grow? Well, Lisa Miller sure does. Um, What'd she say? She says, she says talking about it and, and really encouraging their curiosity. Her, she's very Montessori in the sense that like, because this is an innate capacity, they're going to bring it up. And so even if you're a parent, and I think this is in particularly encouraging for parents who are questioning is that rather than feeling like I need to come present to them this PowerPoint on what we believe. Mm -hmm. You let them explore, you respond as best you can. And sometimes that response is, I don't know, what do you think? Or I don't know, but I know that it's good. Or I don't know, but I know that God loves you or whatever that is. And so it is both being explicit in bringing it up. So not just dealing with you hit and that was against the rules, but instead saying, how is how did you feel when you hit Joaquin? Hmm. Well, how did Joaquin feel? Do you think that there's more love between you now? It's just like therapy, honestly. It's like <laughs> it's it's help like in therapy, you want the client to come to their own conclusions. You want them to like do their own reasoning and get there themselves, not because you're treating them like a child, but because when I come to my own conclusions, they stick better. I, you know, it's like yes. when I find a band, I love them more than if someone else tells me about a band. Like well, anything yes. we come to, 
we it will stay better. So it's like, well, how do you think Lammy felt when you uh, hit her with the horse? You know, and you would also, you like to be hit with a horse? You know, right? Exactly. And it also removes some of that danger that you're going to manipulate or step on their autonomy as a person. Hmm. I think one of the things I've been reading the Stoic philosophers for my new book lately, and I've been just interested in what they have to say on some things. And then I started reading like Henry Nouwen on suffering. And I was thinking like, man, all of these things are really good and helpful, but only if I'm choosing it. If it's being prescribed to me hmm. that I need to, if if I come to somebody and I say, I'm angry and they say, well, you're choosing to be angry. Yeah. It is not helpful. That's not helpful. No. <laughs> If but if you can come and, to realize that you are in some sense choosing to be angry, you know, maybe not in that first moment, but that like you're choosing to harbor right. it or you're exactly you come to that. Oh, so powerful. Right. I'm making a judgment about this. Like, yeah. that, and that's what the Stoics are all about. And then Henry now and about like choosing joy in the midst of suffering. If someone tells you to fucking choose joy in the midst of suffering, you just want to punch them in the face. <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll show you joy. Now work. are you joyful? I'll tell you what I'm not choosing right now. It's fucking joy. <laughs> yeah, less now. Thanks to you. <laughs> exactly. I won't yeah. be choosing joy. So, yeah. But he talks about that. And I thought, this is incredibly freeing, only if I come to it with a degree of agency. And so I think, and Lisa Miller would say this about spirituality, is that Agency is critical because having your agency removed is a violation. It already is a wound. And so I think that a lot of what we see in churches as people try to take this good advice and apply it, you know, and pastors try to yeah. apply it because they're doing their job of being, unfortunately, what has become kind of didactic or instructional as opposed to being a therapist, which they're not trained to be. You see a lot of, well, you just need to be joyful. Your continuing anger is sin, blah, 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 blah. You need to repent. Right. And it's held up as you don't really have a choice in this if you want to be in God's favor. And so critical to all of this development that Lisa Miller's talking about is agency. And that Tina Payne Bryson is talking about all of like the child being able to feel like they are an active participant who's making these choices, not only does it make the lessons stick better, but it, it prevents the wounds along the way. I got one more sort of concept to talk about with you. And it's actually something that I will be getting into more depth with, with Meredith Miller, who is, uh, she's kind of more in the theology space, curriculum for kids, that kind of thing. She's someone you can follow on Instagram and feel good about it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Josh, Put Meredith Miller's uh, Instagram handle in the show notes. It's Meredith Ann with an E Miller. Um, and one of the things that came out, the most interesting thing in my conversation with her that I had this summer was directly related to, to Lisa Miller's work. And I just want to, it's such a cool idea that I want to get your take on it too. And what Meredith said was think about the difference between the following two assumptions with your children from a faith perspective. Assumption number one is Lisa Miller's. Uh, they naturally, in almost all cases, have an intact capacity to spiritually relate to God. Spirituality is something that we can show, 
neurologically and cognitively and whatever that kids and I've talked about this with Justin Barrett and some of his work, uh, Born Believers, and he's like a fuller, former fuller guy. Like this is not controversial even among more conservative Christian psychologists. So kids have this capacity. So in in the Lisa Miller approach, the main thing you want to assume about your kids is that they have this capacity. And if they already have it and you want them to be able to do it, what do you do? You water it. You give it fertilizer. You help it grow. Versus the main thing that is important for a child to do or whatever or understand from a religious perspective is that they are not worthy of being in God's presence until they are washed in the blood. So if that's your main assumption, then what you're going to make sure to teach children as soon as possible before they can even really understand it is that they are sinful and that they are in need of salvation. So, I mean, I think this is a deep question. There are probably 50 things you could say that would be differential between those two approaches, but it's kind of mind blowing to me, the different ways that you would likely parent or interact with kids at Sunday school or what have you based on those two kind of like, what's the main thing going on here that we should be responding to? Is it their sinfulness or is it their natural capacity for relationship with God? I just want to get your two cents on this. I mean, I think that is such a good articulation of what's at the core. And I think one of the big freedoms that parents need for themselves that changes the way you parent is the removal of making everything a moral good or bad, removing that sin as the primary corrupter. And that's kind of what that question is doing. It's saying, is sin our factor or is spirituality our factor? Mm -hmm. And I think that from the adults that I talked to, the wounds of growing up with sin as the primary thing that was being measured in their life led to just heartache. It led them to lots of mental unhealth. It led them to toxic relationships. It led them to act out bigger. And now many of them are looking for that other thing. They're looking for, can I have spirituality without it being defined by sin? My, my contribution to that as a journalist is that that is a common, common story. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Boundaries of our competence. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of the million dollar question of like in terms of going forward. And I genuinely don't know the answer to this. Like do religious to what extent do religious groups, which we know are beneficial for people, cohere because of some of these individually damaging psychological assumptions? And do like do you get some of the benefit by providing the antidote to the wound you are creating. However, if you're not involved in any such group, can you get that same benefit? Because that benefit, like to be very clear, I'm just throwing out stuff here because I, I do not know the answer. But like, let's say you have spent 30 years in a church 
which unnecessarily convinces you of your sinfulness, but you are confident in God's saving grace. And then Hurricane Katrina hits your community and you experience massive group-wide trauma and individual trauma. And you have a mechanism for what to do when stuff is so shitty, you turn to God. Sure. In the long run, how do you grade how do you grade the introduction of this worm theology and salvation, which then gave you this post-traumatic coping strategy that your atheist neighbor maybe didn't have? Like, I don't know how to value all of that stuff. It's really kind of beyond any individual's pay grade. Yeah. And it's the question that social workers face when they have to say, is no parent better than a bad parent? Right. Do, is the foster system a better alternative than this alcoholic? It's a question we have to face in a world without perfection. Yeah. And I think accepting that is is important. But I am looking forward to your book, um, Is My Bible Study Trauma Bonding? <laughs> because that's <laughs> what I'm hearing you ask. <laughs> and I have wondered that myself. Like, is, yeah, I know, <laughs> um, is I do think that the church... This is an opinion. I'm going to qualify that. Um, sure. But, you know, journalists have those too. I do think that the church stays relevant in a world where it's not as necessary from a social standpoint. You can get, ne- you can network other places, you can find communities of other common interests, clubs, whatever. And that's increasingly acceptable if you want to run for public office or have a business, you know, that we don't, you don't have to be in church. But I think the church has maintained a lot of its relevance by increasing people's feeling that they morally are dependent on the church and, you know, sure. the guidance of a pastor and whatnot. It's tough. I mean, to <laughs> some degree, what religious systems are doing is giving more specific language to evident truths that this world is fucked up, you know? Sure. You're fucked up in some significant ways. What's hard, I think, psychologically is that one size never fits all internally. So right. the phrase, I must be washed in the blood, can mean a hundred different things to a hundred different people. And Absolutely. you don't have control over that when you just say, Everyone in here needs to be washed in the blood. Okay, so for one guy, he's like, I can be. And that gives me all this hope. Another person says, I thought I already had been 10 times. I guess I got to do it again. And they have like religious scrupulosity or maybe OCD. And you don't it, – so it's it's very difficult. I mean there's really – it's just difficult to say anything that is true for a lot of people. Um, but especially you get into these very murky you know, waters – and like, if you want to, for instance, say you agree with Lisa Miller and you're like, I want to inculcate my child's spirituality. Well, I'll tell you a really good way to do that. In theory, take them to church three times a week, then they're going to grow it. But what kind of church is it? And the type yes. of churches that meet three times a week, <laughs> what are the costs of that? And the, and the type of church that would not damage that ability, they don't meet three times a fucking week. People don't want to go that often. So it's really a, a big quagmire. Hope, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that in some of these episodes focused on parenting and spirituality, that we can start to come up with some principles that help us. Obviously, you didn't write a how-to book, but if there are a couple sort of like 
principles or questions to be asking or lenses that you can list out? Like, what have you kind of come to as like, what are the first couple things you think about when these questions come up? Maybe you can leave us with something a little more pithy than it's not a how-to book. Like, what, <laughs> what, are, what can we take into the week and kick around? Sure. I'd say it's two things. It's that you have to continue your own journey until you find peace and until you see peace. And two, your children need to know that you love them and feel that you love them. And that's a partnership. That's not just something you can say. And I think that those two go hand in hand. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And so like tend to your own healing, not to be too Instagrammy about it, but like tend your own garden and water theirs. No, that's, I mean, I, I do like that a lot. It's, it's undeniable that our own, and you learn this very quickly as a parent, mm -hmm. that your own stuff makes its way out and they pick up on it. You know, a big, a big axiom in parenting is like, they, they see what you do and say much more clearly than they like internalize what you tell them to do or yeah. say. Do as I say, not as I do. It doesn't work. Be, <laughs> no. and, like that phrase is there because it, uh, it gives us some sort of comfort, like as if that would work if we say right. that it doesn't right. work. They mm -hmm. see what we do. And so it, in, in one sense, it's obviously true, but it's good to be reminded of like, yeah, if you've got stuff that's unresolved, resolve it because they, that's yeah. big. And they see your truth. They see the, I'm I'm sounding much more like Instagrammy than I usually do, actually, ironically. But they see your priorities. And that's one of the hardest parts about parenting is the inability to hide. Because my kids know more than I want them to what I actually care about and what I'm what actually gets me upset. They know they can call you on your bullshit over and over and over again. And I think that if they're not doing it to your face, they're, they're keeping track. <laughs> and yeah. so that like, you got to deal with your bullshit. <laughs> Becca, thank you so much for joining me. What a fun conversation. Obviously people should check out the book. We, there's a lot in there that we did not cover. Uh, it's a great resource bringing up kids when church, church lets you down and uh, listeners, look forward to a couple more conversations around this topic. I'm planning to do another two or three over the next, call it 10 to 12 months. Awesome. Well, I'm an avid listener, so I will be tuning in as well. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Also, this new book you're working on with the Stoics, that sounds good. You'll love this. It's going to be about, I can talk about it because we've signed a contract. It's again with Erdman's. It's going to be about how our view of suffering influences our stance on social issues. Whoa, cool. Yeah. And the, the, they, before they sent me a contract, they said, um, we do want to be clear that it will be funny, right? A hundred percent serious. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, prerequisite for this book contract. It needs to be funny. No, but actually I do want to say like, you were pretty honest about some of your own pain and, and issues with your childhood and, and your anger issues and all that. And so I also appreciate that. Thanks for kind of um, giving us a little window into your humanity, which I think helps me understand like where you're coming from and, and just put some flesh on the bone in a way that I think is helpful. Thanks. Sunlight is the best disinfectant there. <laughs> just might as well Amen. be honest. Amen. Amen. <laughs>